0: This WestWords Mini Masterclass is a production of WestWords, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on WestWords and what we do, please go to westwords.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Westwards Mini Masterclass, I'm James Roy, I'm your host and today I'm talking to Catherine Jinx. Now Catherine um, uh, was born in Australia, she grew up in Papua New Guinea and later on she studied medieval history at the University of Sydney. She married a Canadian journalist Peter and lived for a short time in Nova Scotia in Canada. She's now a full-time writer, she lives in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, just up the road from me in fact She's a four-time winner of the Children's Book Council of Australia Book of the Year Award and she has won a Victorian Premier's Literary Award, Adelaide Festival Award for Literature, the Ina Noel Award and an Aurealis Award for Science Fiction. And in 2001 she received a Centenary Medal for her contribution to Australian children's literature. Some of the books, how many books is it, Catherine? It's
1: around 50 but
0: I haven't, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. Some of those books, some of the highlights include Pagan's Crusade, Evil Genius, the City of Orphans trilogy, and her most recent book, Shepherd. How are you, Catherine?
1: Well, stuck inside, but you know.
0: Stuck (laughs) inside like everyone else. So today we're talking about something that's quite close to your heart, uh, as someone who's written a number of historical books over the years, historical fiction, uh, the idea of language in historical fiction. Where would you like to start?
1: I suppose I want to start with the fact that if you're writing historical fiction, even if it's historical fantasy fiction, because... With fantasy in general, the thing you have to do is to make everything else as realistic as possible, so that the fantasy feels real. So when you, you know, when you're doing historical fantasy, it's the same thing. You have to make the historical setting and everything as real as you can, so that the fantasy feels real. And part of making something feel real and not just a bunch of people, modern people walking around with you know, kind of fancy dress on, is to understand the kind of language they used so that you don't make real clangers like you see sometimes on historical television when people are going around saying, I'm fine or whatever, which is, you know, not well. I mean, they'd be saying, I'm well, you know, like until fairly recently, you know what I mean? So, I mean, there are different things you can do and there are different ways of approaching historical fiction. And I've once approached, I've approached historical fiction a lot of different ways. And one of the ways I've approached it was with my second published book pagan's crusade i approached it in a slightly different way from a lot of historical fiction which is that the syntax and everything is very modern and the way it's written is quite modern but what i made sure i didn't do for example was really really inappropriate say metaphors or, or similes or whatever so that i wouldn't be well i wouldn't be using a phrase like off the rails because mm. that's about you know railway so i don't put that in there you know i try and make even though the actual syntax was quite modern, um, I didn't use, I tried not to use, sometimes I did use words that were modern, but they weren't too kind of aggressively modern. You have to have a bit of a grasp of what's appropriate and the really the only way you can do that is is, it, is if you actually read a lot in that period. Um, if you're writing Victorian fiction, you know, certain Victorian times or 19th century, you should be reading a reasonable amount of that so you know you get a grip on. I mean, you don't always pick it up, but, you know, a lot of the time if you read enough of that stuff, you will know when something doesn't sound right for that period. So I, you know, I've done a variety of different kinds of historical periods. I've done medieval and I've done 18th century and I've done 19th century, early 19th century and late 19th century uh and so with something like the gentleman's garden that was that's set in um basically in about 1816 through to 1821 so needless to say i just read a lot of jane austen <laughs> and um and i used her as my model in like i had all to sort of help with the passage of time between certain Uh, you know, chapters, I'd have these letters that she's written, the main character. And so I'll have something like, my dearest Margaret, the misery attendant upon our parting was such that I find myself plagued by misgivings of a horrible nature. That's the kind of language that people used to use, but they don't do now in their letters, you know. Um, Did I express myself with sufficient feeling, this kind of thing?
0: I would have been utterly horrified at the idea that we start an email with hi, whoever the the idea that all of that formality is just all yeah. us <laughs> abandoned. You know, yours faithfully right. and your dearest and your ever yours and all this kind of thing was is, is pretty much evaporated from from modern yeah. day.
1: I think basically one rather prided oneself on how well one <laughs> wrote and you know constructed one's sentences in those days. It was a bit of a you know display of I don't know
0: status Class, really and, yeah, um,
1: yeah, yeah. and it's not just the the kind of words that were used and the kind of um types of um, metaphors and so forth it was also the rhythms so if you read different periods of of lang- of text you you start to get a feel for the rhythms of of the period and that doesn't necessarily mean you have to write your entire thing in the rhythms but the rhythms of the speech are very important, I think. So um, with with the medieval stuff, after, like I wrote Pagan's Crusade in a really kind of, um, as I say, modern syntax, but I did include in that actually loads and loads of biblical quotes because that was the whole thing about if you're going to do a medieval stuff, you have to know your Bible. You have to know it absolutely really well, especially the classic places to find things to quote in the Bible are the Proverbs and the Psalms because uh, and also um, the Song of Solomon's pretty good too so it, it's all full, always full of lots of um, really great figurative language and stuff that you can you can compare you know descriptive kind of things that you can use and the, the thing about if you had any education in the Middle Ages in Europe it was based on the Bible so I had my pagan was educated in a monastery before he left it So he tends to quote from the Bible quite a lot because that's what they would have done. And in my book, say, The Inquisitor, which is about a guy who's a Dominican monk, he heavily quotes the Bible. I mean, and not only the Bible too. The more educated you were, the better, the more you'd read various authorities and if you read any medieval stuff, they're constantly quoting authorities, you know, church authorities to to show that a they're educated and b that what they're saying is true so you know i'd be like um i started off the book as as a sort of a a letter says when the lord appeared before king solomon and said unto him ask what i shall give thee king solomon replied give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people that i may discern between good and bad such was the prayer of solomon and such was my prayer too for many years as i started so you'd be constantly quoting Saint Augustine or Bible or something like that to kind of indicate that you were a serious person. So that's why I really got into knowing my Bible when I was doing all this medieval stuff. And like with the with the rhythms as well, like if with something like that, that was a there's a really long first sentence or second sentence or something on that book um and that's because if you get somebody like like if you read the the say this is a uh, a letter from Innocent III in um 1207, right? Since those who fight for liberty of the church ought to be fostered by the protection of the church, we, by our apostolic authority, have decided that our beloved, who in obedience to Christ are signed or are about to be signed, against the provincial heretics from the time that they, according to the ordinance of our legates, Place on their breast the sign of the quickening cross to fight against the heretics, shall be under the protection of the apostolic seat and of ourselves, with their persons and lands, their possessions and men, and also all of the other property. And until full proof, proof is obtained of their return or death, all of the above shall remain as they were, free and undisturbed. That was one sentence. <laughs> it was that long kind of sentence. They love it. And it's pretty well structured. You could pretty much tell what they're saying, but it's really long. And so, you know, the rhythms. We aren't used to those kind of long sentences. Anyway, but you, basically what I mean is that when you're doing different periods, um, you just have to know the rhythms because so much of writing, I think there's not enough talk when talking about writing about rhythm and how and how vital it is and the pace um, to know your rhythms, your historical rhythms for a particular period and also the, the the kind of use of language.
0: The reader needs to be prepared to go with you on that
1: yeah I mean, you can't reproduce it exactly, but I don't know. you just have to have a sense of how far you can push it. You can't necessarily imitate exactly because somebody's not going to maybe put up with that sentence as long as that papal sentence there. but if you can push it as far as sort of modern taste will take it, I think that's um, and also remembering, say, with that um book that gentleman's Garden, which was kind of written as a vague copy of Austen. I could do that because it was a romance <laughs> and a lot of people who'd be reading a romance would be Austen fans anyway.
0: Well, that, that's interesting because actually my next question, which I'd written down here to ask you, was, was this. You know, if you're trying to describe the way someone feels about someone else in, in, a, in a modern sense when we, we are very kind of succinct in the way we describe affection for someone, for example... At what point do you go? Okay, this letter that back in the days of Austin would have been considered incredibly heartfelt and intimate and tender is actually making my readers go. I'll just get on with it. Tell them to love you already. And you love them already. <laughs> how, how do you kind of? I guess this is what you mean, where you say you have to know how far to push it. Is that what you're talking about? Well, I
1: think okay. For example, one of the things you can do, particularly if you're doing it for kids, is not to like. If is not to put it in the first person. Like, like with the Inquisitor, that's in the first person. So his his thoughts and everything seem to be tend to be a bit um more like the old fat you know, more of the period rhythms and word usage. But for a kid it's more difficult, unless you're gonna do it like Pagan's Crusade, which was more um, you know, modern. With with um say Theophilus Gray and the Demon Thief, which is 18th century, mid-18th century. I I made the narrative fairly simple. And straightforward it was more the dialogue to give the feeling of period the, the period atmosphere it was more to do with the dialogue which would have been a little more loose anyway so with things like the other okay the other thing you could you, you particularly do in the 18th and 19th century is master the the um the slang if you're in the um in the sort of particularly if you're you're in a sort of lower lower economic group like like The Demon Thief and um, City of Orphans were, you went off to the internet and there's these amazing glossaries of kind of 18th and 19th century slang which you immediately print out (laughs) and then you use them um, when you need them in in some of this um, dialogue and that will help you give the flavour without being too hard to stomach, I suppose. So that's another thing you can do. That's the two things you have to do. If you're 19th and 18th century and you've got any sort of, well, even actually if if you look at um, Georgette Heyer and um, who I've always admired and um, because what she really had a grip on was the the slang um, because a lot of that lower class slang eventually sort of 18th century lower class slang vaguely ended up rising into the upper classes, especially for the guys, for the men. Who kind of wanted to be? Who are a bit? Um, oh, you know, it's the, the it's what happens now when you want to look a bit sort of, um, you know, manly and like you've got a finger on the pulse of the, the sort of the lower classes and all that. And they, and they started to use a lot of lower class slang later on, uh, in the upper classes. So for the eighteenth and nineteenth century, it's very important to have your slang right. Plus the kind of usages that you can pick up. Well, I mean, Dickens had a lot of it. He was very close to that that class. He 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 spent a lot of time down in the sort of the the alleys. And if you yeah, and if you um, and if you're doing medieval, you you get your Bible. So it's like you have to just master the sort of basic
0: things that you need. One of the things that I find frustrating when I read a lot of fantasy, not that I read a lot of fantasy because I've, I've never been a huge fantasy reader, but that that common trope you see in fantasy with. Uh, The language is really high, if you like.
1: Oh, high. High You know (laughs) what I mean, Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think it all, to be honest, it's all Tolkien's fault. Do you think so? Yeah, yeah. It's all Tolkien's fault. Well, it's a combination, but I think Tolkien being a linguist and translating a lot of these sagas and what have you, especially since they were actually done during the, I mean, he started it during the late 19th century, So early, very early. I mean, yeah, something like that, wasn't it? Or early 20th. But basically when you translate, well, it was all about royal, like when you're translating sagas, it's all about great heroes and royalty. And when you're talking about those, it's always in elevated language because that's how people were trained to do it. I mean, when you look at... People, I think, these days don't understand how trained people were in language once. And when you look at, say, right back to the Romans and you had somebody like Cicero, um, it was all about um, rhetoric and how you had particular ways of structuring language that you you, you were supposed to use those ways to elicit noble feelings or noble thoughts and all of that kind of stuff and and then that went on to when you were talk when you were talking about historical you know when you were writing about kings and things and you were being you were usually on the payroll and you were trying to make them look really good and so you'd be using these wonderful elevated language sort of thing so and in the sagas it's the same because you're trying to make heroes look like heroes and what have you. And I think what happened is that he took that and he used it for his fantasy and I think it's been infecting everybody ever since. I mean, I think it's shaken off a lot with, I mean, what's his name? Um, you know, Game of Thrones guy. I suddenly had George a total Martin. Name. George Martin. Not all of his language is like that.
0: That was the point I was actually about to make was that um no, I haven't read much of the the Game of Thrones books because, as I say, fantasy really isn't my thing. But I did get into the TV oh, show, and yep. I was I was it was refreshing to hear people talk in a fairly direct way. It would have been nice to have Gandalf say, "Put that down, Frodo. You'll catch your death," or something, rather than just, you know, going on.
1: <laughs> well. The thing is, well, no, again, I think it's really interesting. With Tolkien, he had a bit more of that. S- simple stuff but it was always for the simple people so it was that real class divide thing which happened in Shakespeare you know what I mean so you had the simple hobbit type stuff and then they were simple and they spoke common sort of country folk language and then you had the lofty elves and and, and royalty who spoke the the elevated language so I think you know it's an old tradition and it was used and people keep on using it but i think people are starting to break that up and and work against it like for effect you know that old
0: terry, terry pratchett terry pratchett managed to yes. um, to do yes. that but he was also doing it to comic effect
1: but that itself i mean that's that comedy that pricks pretension i guess the thing is the that kind of language that people used in high official Situations in English is the closest we had to just sort of formal and informal. Like in Italy, I know a guy who tries to write in informal Italian, but that's not what literature is meant to be. It's meant to be written in formal Italian. It's a different kind of informal and formal. And there's a lot of that. That a lot of that happens in different um, cultures. The sense of formality in language, which is about respect, and even in sort of Japan and so forth, just I mean, even just the, the formal you and the non non formal you in Italian or something like we don't have that sense. So it's been very easy to break the whole formal language thing down entirely. It's in it's in ruin now. Like you can almost you can almost nobody use really formal language. They use corporate speak instead or or something. You know what I mean? It's um I don't know where we got onto this, but anyway, it's just an interesting.
0: But idea. but even even just just the way then when when you were speaking you're saying you do it this way and you do it that way and you approach it this way whereas if you would it would take a simple change of one word in there to t- to one does it this way and one approaches it that's this right way to completely shift the tenor of what you were saying <laughs> so you know we, we still yes. do it a little bit don't we
1: yeah we do but I, I suppose what people have to think about more so when you're writing historical fiction is to really think about language and how people use it. Because when you write uh, contemporary stuff, you just launch right in and do what you have to do, especially if it's first person. You know, you're just pretty much using the language of the everyday and you don't even think about it as much. You still think about how you arrange it and everything. But stepping back even further and thinking of the social usage of language and, and the, um, class and language, and all of that kind of thing is you have to give it way more thought if you're writing historical fiction than you're writing contemporary.
0: Well, I guess that um, you, it, it's giving subtle cues or maybe not so subtle in some cases, but it's giving subtle cues to the reader about where someone is positioned in a scene. For example, if somebody is in a particularly formal scene but they're speaking in a in an informal kind of way because that's just how they talk, That, that how, would, how do you use that to increase the tension in a scene or whatever is is that is that a something that you would use in that way
1: one example would be my little um hero of theophilus gray in the trader's mask he's a link boy who so he's the bottom of the barrel he just runs around lighting people's way because there wasn't any street lighting um, at night and he at one point in the, there's a scene where he meets up with henry fielding and henry fielding of course was a real person who wrote novels but um, he was also the local police magistrate around uh, Soho and everything. And I just had, and he, he used to use, because my hero Philo is a bit of a spy because he gets around so much and he knows every street and every person on them. So he's quite a good person to ask to keep an eye out for people or to look for things. But so he drops in to see Henry Fielding in the um, in the very first um, sort of police station there, and um, I just remember he's he's sitting here. He goes in and Mister Fielding asks, "Poor old Philo, did you hear about the new gin bill? Um, I expect to see a drop in street crime and an improvement in children's health." I said as much in the pamphlet I published last week. Oh, I Philo hadn't heard about this pamphlet. What what was it called? An inquiry into the causes of the late increase in robbers with some proposals for remedying this growing evil in which the present reigning vices are impartially exposed and the laws that relate to the provision of the poor and the punishment of felons are largely and freely examined. <laughs> so just, you know, that's a really a contrast.
0: If that's, his... if, that's the, um, if that's the title, I can't wait to read the preamble. <laughs> I know,
1: right? But I just love throwing that in with poor little philo-like.
0: Okay. okay, I thought it was going to be called Why Kids Aren't Bad Anymore.
1: Yeah, yeah that, that's right. So, yes, it was It was an almost nasty attempt to show how incredibly sophisticated Henry Fielding was um, compared with poor little Philo. So, okay.
0: so pretty much coming to the the end, but one of the last questions I'd like to ask you, and, and I'll give you an example of what I mean before you, I get you to address it. One of my favourite historical shows is Deadwood
1: oh I love the language in Deadwood
0: okay so let's oh. talk about let's talk about that because it's it's very it's quite dense language he talks they talk very fast they pack a lot of stuff it's got this interesting a bit like the old um NYPD blue syntax where it's it's kind of the the language curls on itself again and it, it's a little bit you got to pay attention you got to work hard um and the west wing was a bit like that but let's stay with Deadwood but the the main question I have about that is is the lang the vulgar language that they use because there's a number of terms that they use a lot and they're words that I, I can't repeat on this PG thirteen podcast <laughs> but there are certain words that these days are kind of at the top of the pile in terms of vulgar words that swearingen in particular uses liberally but I feel confident that back in the 1850s they goddamn was probably considered. You know, right up near the top of the pile. What what was your take on the way they they co-opted modern vulgarities in in a world that probably didn't use those words?
1: I actually think if you look at some of um, the records to do with the convicts coming over, there was actually more um, you know that that kind of language happening than you would think um i know f word was being used and the c word was being used quite a lot um i remember reading about the um the a female factory and the women in there and how they would throw the c word around a lot especially yeah. at the guards to kind of really upset them i'm not sure about the cs word
0: <laughs> <laughs> from the, anyone who's, anyone who's watched, um, watched deadwood knows precisely what Catherine's <laughs> yeah. talking about yeah,
1: absolutely but uh, yeah but i th- this is what I think. And this is, um, and of because that was even earlier than Deadwood. Mm. What I found amazing about Deadwood was how the rhythms, like what I was talking about with the 19th century rhythms, they were all there. Like You could really feel this person knew the 19th century rhythms back to front. He played with them a bit, but this idea of having a long sentence that comes back to the beginning, that happened all the time, and he understood it and he used it and he was really he played with it and he really knew it the fact that he was so well acquainted with that with that syntax and the way people spoke in a formal sense he he obviously took the step to think okay if you read all this if you read things that way you probably spoke that way to a degree as well and I think he's right I do think he's right I think that's part of the reason why now you would look at some of these speeches that people gave and think oh, my God, I would just die of boredom if I had to sit through that. But in those days, that's what they were used to. However, and, and so, yeah, so I think he was right in thinking that people probably spoke more like the written this sort of elegant thing. But putting in all that language, because he was so right about the other thing, I would give him the benefit of down on that. I think he might have found it somewhere. It might have been not as freely used, but I wouldn't be surprised, especially out in the, you know, Wild West, if there was a bit of that usage not in all classes of folk it has to be said you know um
0: but again that points to the that sort of points to what you're saying earlier that in many cases people were speaking that way unnecessarily to to present themselves as being more educated than perhaps they were because i mean around about the same time abraham lincoln presented the gettysburg address which was 272 words and it's renowned for being this incredibly powerful but succinct kind of thing. He didn't have anything to prove to anyone effectively.
1: Yeah, I guess that's right. I mean, I suppose in a way, you know, it goes back to this whole rhetoric thing. Like people studied language in those days because people listened to it. You know, it wasn't all visual the way it is now, you know. People, and it's all these quick cuts on television. You never let anybody speak for any length of time unless it's one of these special sort of discussion programs and all this sort of stuff people don't have as much patience but people learned about presenting words and how to do it properly
0: kind of weirdly ironic that that donald trump is he's not really following any of the rules of proper um oration he's not really an orator but he still clings to this idea if you're going to be in a radio you've got to talk for two hours about something
1: well, he understands clickbait. It's all, it's just little phrases that he picks up on because in a way you can see it. He's kind of got this real child's, like, level of attention, like a child's attention span. So he will pick up on things that other people will pick up on too because they've got children's spend, you know, like he can appeal to people who haven't got very long attention spans because he, he doesn't have one so he can pick up exactly what he, thinks is important and throw it out there where, you know, like that's that's a different kind of ability, I suppose.
0: And we're, we're kind of getting off the historical thing. Yes, now. we
1: are. I know we should
0: probably. Hopefully one day it will be <laughs> historical and we can look back and laugh, but at, at, the, at the moment it's a bit of a horrible nightmare, actually.
1: Look, I suppose when you're writing historical fiction, everybody very much focuses on, you know, making sure they know exactly what the footmen wear and, um, you know, exactly you know, what building was where in London or exactly, you know, what the rules were governing funerals, all this sort of stuff. I mean, we're talking right down to people's cups and plates. You know, everybody tends to really try and master the historical detail. But often there's that one problem where they f- forget to look at the language that they're presenting it in. That's that's where it really, that's where people have this immense mastery of the historical period, but they don't have a mastery of the sound of of the language of the period. And that's what you have to remember to do.
0: And I suppose, um, you know, I've I've recorded a couple of podcasts this week for this particular series. with people talking about world building and I suppose in a sense this idea of getting the language right is very much a part of that world building, isn't it?
1: It's world building but it's also technical. Like there's the imaginative side of it which is the world building but there's the technical side of it, which is putting the words on the paper and the world that you've got here has to infect, affect the way you put the words on the paper. You know what I mean? And when it's historical, it has, to have, it has to be somehow, you have to be aware of it. You don't have to be imitated perfectly. You have to know it. It's like with, any, like with historical fiction, you have to know the whole thing and then you can ignore most of it, but you have to know it, you know what I mean? It's the yeah. same thing with the language.
0: That's something that comes up a lot with world building, and with this as well. Know it all, um, and then,
1: and then select what you need to. And mention. then
0: it flavours the rest of it in a sort of yes. subtle kind of way. Thank you so much for talking to us. Really appreciate it. Uh, hopefully, we'll um, we'll do this again sometime soon.
1: Yeah, yeah, probably. Since we can't get
0: out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks, talk soon. Okay.
1: Bye.